This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Lovely to see you all here. And I wanted to, you know, I don't know if, if folks have seen um, the, the topic of this talk um, on the website, but I intend to talk about the, the forms and formality of Zen and, um, you know, how they help us to practice, how they help us to awaken. Um, and I wanted to acknowledge that, you know, the seed of this uh, talk came out of our, our discussion last week after the Dharma talk, um, which was a lovely uh, conversation about, in part about how to be welcoming, you know, how to, um, how to create the space and environment that people feel um, encouraged to come and practice, you know, and to, you know, to sit down and do the, the sometimes hard work of, um, you know, digesting our life. Um, <clears throat> so one of the questions that came up was about, yeah, how to, how to kind of uh, be welcoming to somebody who's new, but not kind of, um, not forget the forms and the formality um, and their importance. So um, it's this kind of balancing act. And maybe I'll step back and just say, you know, when I say forms or formality, I think we all understand that, um, you know, I, th I thought it was really strange when I walked into a Zen temple. I think I, I had some idea of what meditation might look like. You know, I'd seen pictures of the Buddha sitting cross-legged but I didn't expect, you know, the trappings, the, the kind of the, the different clothes, the, um, the ways that people would, would, would bow at certain times, you know, postures they would carry, you know, shashu, you know, the things that we would chant. Sometimes the things we would chant would be in English and sometimes they would just be transliterated, you know, Japanese syllables which gave it even a kind of more foreign and strange feel. And I think there's sometimes a criticism of Zen that it to Americans feels unwelcoming or something because of this differentness or strangeness to us culturally. And I think, you know, it's important for us to, to hear that criticism, um, to, to not dismiss you know, oh, they just don't understand or they haven't been around long enough. You know, to really question the ways that our formality, you know, help us and the ways that um, they can become a kind of snare, how we can be caught by our forms and formality. So in uh, Being Upright, um, Reb Anderson, in a chapter that's specifically on, you know, this book is, is on the, the Zen precepts or the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. And there's one precept that um, usually we chant as, I think I, we, I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. 
which is a wonderful, lovely sentiment, you know, especially that being lived, you know, what does that mean? How do we, how do we allow ourselves to be lived for the benefit of all beings? But tension, Reb Anderson takes up a kind of very different translation of this precept, which he translates as um, a vow to embrace and sustain forms and ceremonies. So what do forms and ceremonies have to do with living and being lived this, um, this flowing uh, prajna or Tao? So Tenshin says, the true or liberating nature of all things is formless and inconceivably wonderful. It cannot be grasped, but it can be realized through the forms of everyday life. By giving up our habitual personal styles of deportment and bringing our body, speech, and thought into accord with traditional forms and ceremonies, we merge in realization with Buddha. We renounce our habit body and manifest the true Dharma body. This renouncing worldly affairs and entering, oh, this is renouncing worldly affairs and entering the Buddha way. So uh, maybe I'll just continue with one other thing that he says. He says, the Buddha way is all pervading and free of limits. So this kind of vast, inconceivably wonderful thing, yet without some container in which to practice, it cannot be fully realized. When correctly understood and practiced appropriately, the traditional rules and procedures of Zen training provide a context within which student and teacher together can realize selflessness and practice wholeheartedly, wholesomely, and in harmony with all beings. So I think, you know, when I started practice, I didn't realize the depth of the intricacies of forms. And maybe, maybe we can't until we kind of are fully immersed in them, which you know, often takes going to a monastery. You know, there's certain levels of form and formality that we practice together you know, here at the Austin Sun Center or at any temple. And, uh, and yet there's kind of, almost limitless depths to the intricacy that we could, you know, take up as a practice. And I think I didn't realize that the forms and formality um, weren't just kind of at my local temple. <laughs> they weren't just sort of local um, guidelines that these uh, in Soto Zen practice, you know, many of, of the forms we still use go back to um, uh, Dogen in, in the 12th or 13th century. Um, and, and what he wrote down was the Ehe Shingi, but even his monastic guidelines were just a kind of retelling of older, um, I think the Qingyuan Shingi, you know, in China. So hundreds and hundreds of years of, um, transmitting and passing on certain ways of 
of being, of relating, of comporting ourselves in this effort to awaken. And it's a kind of kind of dorky Zen thing to do, but if you ever have a chance to read the Ehe Shingi, um, <clears throat> he, uh, there's a chapter, what's the chapter called? Bendo Ho, uh, which is the model for engaging the way. And he basically takes you through a monastic day and every kind of moment of a monk's life and how choreographed it is, you know? And I like, he says, you know, at the very beginning of the chapter, um, <clears throat> all Buddhas and all ancestors are within the way and engage it. Without the way, they would not engage it. The Dharma exists and they appear. Without the Dharma, they do not appear. Therefore, when the assembly is sitting, sit together with them. As the assembly gradually lies down, lie down also. Inactivity and stillness at one with the community throughout deaths and rebirths, do not separate from the monastery. So, you know, this is one aspect of forms and formal, formal practice that I'd like to highlight. And that is kind of this harmonizing, you know, this, um, you know, the creation of a Sangha in a way that we um, each individually make our best effort to, um, you know, to learn the forms and to take them up as a way to support everyone else. And as a way to join, you know, in, in activity or stillness with everyone else. And I will say, you know, if you get to practice in a monastery, this becomes a very, you know, visceral felt sense, a lived experience of what they call one body, you know, one body practice, that the Sangha, you know, the collection of practitioners um, become a kind of one entity of um, practice energy and um, inquiry. So I think, you know, part of harmonizing with others is, um, you know, partly it's about not disturbing, uh, you know, respecting each other's practice. You know, I think it's important to remember, we don't know what somebody else is experiencing kind of at any moment in our lives. <laughs> and to some degree, we don't know what we're experiencing. You know, um, we have some idea, but, um, I think it's helpful in our in our sangha practice and in harmonizing to not assume that we know what practice feels like to somebody else or what what they're experiencing at any given moment in time. And so these forms serve to kind of protect us and protect our practice in not disturbing each other in in whatever path we're on. So, you know, this Ehe Shingi takes, takes us through, you know, the daily life of a monk and, and the, the kind of level of detail, you know, can get excruciating. It's, um, 
he, he quotes the, the Sutra of the 3000 deportments. It says there are five kinds of manners for lying down. The first is for your head to be in the direction of the Buddha. The second is not to look at the Buddha while lying down. The third is not to stretch out your legs together rather than keeping them bent. The fourth is not to lie down on your back or front. The fifth is not to raise your knees. And then Dogen adds, definitely sleep lying on your right side and not on your left side. You know, what's the meaning of this level of detail? Um, and what's our reaction to hearing it? You know, I think in, in, you know, in our practice life, you know, the longer we come and, and kind of allow this process to unfold within our own body and mind, um, we can have all kinds of uh, experiences of the forms. I think it's pretty common that we feel some resistance to, to hearing these level of instructions. It feels constricting. You know, some part of us wants to rebel against that level of kind of control or something. And in a monastery, you know, we're trying to, to practice this level of detail throughout our day, you know, and, and sometimes it doesn't feel convenient or sometimes I, you know, I just woke up and I'm, you know, brushing my teeth and I'm trying to think, am I doing, you know, am I disturbing somebody with the way that I brush my teeth? It gets to be a kind of, there can be a kind of self uh, consciousness that can feel grating or wearing. You know, I lived monastically for about five years uh, in a row from, you know, two years at Tassajara and three years at City Center. And when I, when I left City Center and moved across uh, the city in San Francisco, I had this kind of like euphoric reaction to having my own space, to not having a schedule. And it was kind of, it was a, like an enduring euphoric reaction. It was probably like, you know, five or six months. I just felt, you know, so free and so kind of um, delighted by, by not feeling that constriction. And I think that taught me something about the way that I had been perceiving forms and formality, that I had internalized some version of being watched or being, um, Kind of living in public that I think I had been both resisting and forcing myself to do, you know. So part of the question that came up at the um, at the after the lecture last week was, you know, who decides the forms, you know, here at Austin Zen Center, you know, if somebody has a question about the forms, um, who should they see? You know, who, who determines? And I will say that, you know, maybe, maybe most people don't know this, that at Austin Zen Center, we have a practice committee um, that's specifically tasked with kind of questions about forms. Um, and currently that practice committee is made up of, of Mako as the head teacher, Choro as the tanto, and then myself and Pat as practice leaders and Bruce as the Eno. 
um, and together we um, we do discuss these things almost you know every week. So there is a kind of clarity of structure in Zen, at least that. Um, there are certain specific places to go when you have questions about forms. And at the monastery, it's um, this sort of living in public and trying to uphold forms and feeling, maybe internalizing some feeling of being judged or watched, you know? Are other people noticing that I'm making mistakes? You know? It's nice that there's clarification in a monastery that only certain people give feedback on, on or corrections on forms. And this is important. So to know, you know, within a Sangha body, am I, am I somebody that's, you know, being in my role being asked to weigh in on the form? Or maybe I can just allow somebody to, um, to figure it out for themselves. And most, I would say, you know, most times that's been my experience that that's the right answer. Allow somebody to have their experience of, of learning the forms. But again, there's this, you know, kind of process that we all go through in practice of attuning to the forms, learning them. Um, I think when I first started coming to a Zen temple, I was fascinated by the forms. And I actually felt right away some value in them, that I could kind of come to a Zen temple and quietly practice and have my own experience and not feel like I had to entertain or perform or you know even kind of converse with people. I could just kind of come and go within the forms that you know they, they allowed me that. then, you know, I think I got excited about the forms and I wanted to know, you know, what was the right thing to do in this situation or that situation. And it became a kind of game, you know, it's actually a fun game <laughs> because, you know, forms have their own kind of language and, and it's often hard to, you know, we, we, we list them and, you know, there's lots of in Zen monasteries and temples, there's always like signs everywhere. Like, this is how you clean the bathroom or this is how you cheat and, or, you know, there's lots of directions and written words. And it's always funny to me that we're sort of, you know, in language and verbally trying to describe the forms, but actually the forms themselves are kind of taking place in a logic that's outside of language. So, yeah, I think, you know, at some stage for me, th this game of trying to figure them out and trying to hear the language, like, it's not just determining, like, should I bow now or should I not bow now? But do I understand somewhere in my felt sense why that's appropriate? And often it's not something I could describe, but I could feel it, you know, okay, that makes sense to me on some level, some nonverbal level. And a very common stage in kind of learning forms and formality is that once we start to discover, like we understand or we have some attunement to this language, we can become quite judgmental of other people um, in their kind of own process of figuring this out. You know, um, 
there's a particular moment, you know, maybe a year or two into practice where we, you know, start to feel we at home with the forms. And then it's like, we catch ourselves or we start to notice like, oh, that person's not doing it right. Or, or maybe we even say something and, and kind of correct them. And that's kind of a tricky moment in practice. Because again, I think it's really important to allow people to have their own experience of practice and, the, and their own experience of the forms. We don't, we don't always help people by um, explaining things to them. Um, it's often kind of about us and wanting to be seen as knowledgeable or wise or something. <clears throat> You know, and I think about this, even in giving this talk, like it's kind of funny to, um, to talk about forms when largely I think Zen practice encourages us to learn them through doing and through being present with our experience in practicing with others. And it's been, you know, uh, you know part of the pandemic you know, um, isolation of each individual person in their own square here in, in their own homes is that we don't, we don't often get that sort of physical felt sense of what's going on around us in practice, in practicing the forms. And a lot of the forms we've just sort of dropped or they're not kind of possible in this format. But that being said, I think it's maybe important that we do remind ourselves that this is part of practice and a deep part, you know, that is, um, and, you know, maybe that's just, in, in just talking about it, maybe that's preparing us for some time when we can return to, you know, being physically around each other. It's just to kind of remind us that this is an important part of practice. So I think one, you know, and also in, in kind of taking up this question of forms and formality um, in preparation for this talk, uh, I realized how vast this field is. So I have like maybe seven or eight points that I would like to make about forms and their place in practice, but uh, we could, you know, do a whole practice period on this or, you know, give a, se a series of lectures on this. So um, maybe I'm just going to kind of highlight a few things, but there's a whole kind of vast field here. So I think one of the purposes or, or kind of one of the gifts of forms is uh, this inquiry into the present moment. So um, when we step into the zendo um, and we we bow, you know that is only happening right now, right here. You know, there's no other place that that's happening. So um, you know, forms are a kind of mindfulness exercise. Like, am I present with right here and right now, or am I kind of you know, caught in some other place and time and kind of stumbling into the zendo. <laughs> and the gift of having so many forms is that when I stumble into the zendo, I might kind of, an alarm might go off in the back of my head, like, oh, I didn't do that right. And that's a kind of call to, oh, come back and, and embody this moment right here. You know, in this 
kind of early period of fascination that I had with the forms and the, you know, kind of enjoying the game of discovering what it was. Um, in my excitement, I, I asked my teacher one time, why do we, why do we select a certain foot? You know, why is it the right foot that crosses the threshold when I enter the Zendo? Because at, at least I knew that I'm supposed to enter with a certain foot and usually you take a step into the zendo or two, and then you bow to the whole room, and then you return to shashu and you walk to your seat. You know. The... So I asked her why why a certain foot? You know why the right foot? It, it, and it just happened in Chapel Hill to be the right foot. Um, and she <laughs> she kind of saw my earnestness and um, and that I was loving this game. And she kind of like slightly poked me with that, you know, kind of took it away from me. And she just said, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what foot it is, as long as you know what foot it is. And basically, you know, um, that was a lovely teaching and it's kind of continued to teach me. But I think on some level, she was just saying, as long as you're awake and present, you know, that's the point. Uh, you know, this foot or that foot is just calling you back to being here now. So another aspect of practicing with forms is, you know, what, what Tenshin mentioned in his, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the piece that I read at the beginning, which is like, uh, it's this opportunity to give up our habit being our habit mind and our habit mind or being is generally keeping us asleep you know in this sort of if we want to see a kind of continuum of, of kind of asleepness or awakeness habits are um, mostly allowing us to be asleep i think we've all had this experience of getting in a car you know turning the the key driving somewhere it could be 10 15 minutes away, arriving and like, how did I get here? You know, I don't remember driving here. <laughs> so uh, our habit mind in a way has a, has a function. Like it, it kind of can allow us to do certain things without all of our kind of attention and energy. But um, that tends to cumulatively um, put us to sleep in some way, or kind of take us out of the, the vivid experience of the present moment. So forms are um, asking us to give up that habit mind and attune to some kind of larger understandings of comportment and being and being present, you know, and, and part of giving up this habit, the habitual energy of our life, it's a gift, it's refreshing, you know. I, I think sometimes it sounds painful to give up habits and it, and it is and can be, but um, when we step out of our habit mind, there's almost a sense of like, whoa, there's kind of, there's more here, there's more happening than I, than I really realized. So part of giving up our habit mind is giving up the self. 
um, letting go of our small fixed idea of who I am and what I'm doing in this moment. And that's really hard to do without some kind of reminder, some kind of um, I don't know, mother hen pecking at the shell from the outside. So yeah, forms can help us let go of our small life and join some larger life, the life of the Sangha, but ultimately the life of the universe, the life of all beings together, the life of freedom of flowing with kind of the natural wisdom of this moment or prajna. And, you know, I think this is an important um, thing to remember as we practice with forms is at some stage, you know, maybe after the sort of fascination with them, it's important to, to, to kind of see through the forms as well. Um, that forms are ultimately empty. It's not like, you know, stepping with my right foot and bowing at a certain moment holds the world together. You know, it's not that important in some way that forms are empty. They're a kind of empty vehicle through which we, we join this one body when we practice together or this vehicle to let go of the self in our habits. So um, Suzuki Roshi said something, you know, I mean, I actually often repeated, said many times that Zen is Hinayana practice with Mahayana spirit. Um, and we have to be careful because Hinayana is a kind of pejorative word in itself. Um, and it's kind of from the point of view of the Mahayana, which Zen is Mahayana pract uh, uh, yeah, practice. But what he meant was Hinayana is like all these rules, like this, this, you know, the, you know, um, the strictness. And the Mahayana spirit is this kind of openness to vastness. So uh, how do we combine these two? How do we be strict in our comportment and presence, but not think that that's the ultimate goal? You know, we can get caught there in just being strict and knowing the rules and following the rules. But when is it appropriate to break the rule? When is it appropriate to, um, to tweak the form, to vary our, our response? So just to go back to this, this point of letting go of the self, um, I think I've, I've told this story before, but it, at City Center in um, San Francisco, uh, they have a Buddha hall. And so, uh, which is traditional um, in Zen monasteries in Japan, there's a, there's a hall that you sit in um, and then a hall where you go to do service and chant and bow. Or, or hear lectures. Um, and uh, I think, you know, technically it, it, the, the Buddha hall is all tatami, tatami mats. And then on one side is a, is a beautiful statue of a Gandharan Buddha statue. Um, but, you know, the two lines of, 
uh, practitioners face each other and the, the statue is kind of to one side. And traditionally, part of the service is sitting in Seiza on the tatami mat, but uh, most of our Western bodies can't quite sit in, in Seiza for long periods of time. So there's cushions as you come into the room, you can take a cushion. And, you know, there's a very um, small space that each person has to, to, to perform service, basically, to, to, to turn and bow towards the altar and then turn back and chant and then turn again and bow towards the altar. And there's um, two people per tatami mat. So you have to kind of, um, one person is sort of on the right and left. You have to kind of um, find space in a formal way. Like there's, you know, if everybody has the same understanding, you can perform in a small space. But if everybody's making it up on their own, it's kind of hard. So for a while, I was studying this question of like, where, what do you do with the cushion while service is going on? Um, and I noticed that most people in the room um, would, would kind of put the cushion on the ground to their right side. And if there's two rows facing each other, something about that felt wrong to me. And I think actually at Tassahara there, and maybe Mako or somebody could correct me if I'm wrong, like when you get a sutra book during chanting, you're supposed to put it on, on your cushion, but it's supposed to be on the side of your cushion that's away from the altar. And I think something about that was echoing to me in this experience at city center. And um, it felt wrong that everybody put the cushion to their right side. And I think what, what I was battling with is our, our kind of, our very human common sense that we are the center of the universe, that, um, that life revolves around me. And um, actually in Zen, you know, part of forms that to put the, you know, cushion or the sutra book on the side away from the altar means that if you're standing on one side of the room, that's the right side. And on the other side, it's actually the left side that's away from the altar. So there's a slight attunement to what are we, what are we referencing to as the center? Is it me? Or is it the statue or the center or the, the altar? It seems subtle, but it's actually this kind of Copernican revolution of <laughs> I'm not the center of the universe. The earth is not the center of the universe. And actually we revolve around the sun or the, the hall is arranged around the altar. And these are the kind of, you know, felt lessons we can get from the forms. And it, to me, it's a relief, like <laughs> to know that the world doesn't totally depend on me. Oh, great. <laughs> that's, that's um, <clears throat> thank God. So I think, you know, another aspect of forms is just a structure, a structure or scaffolding through which this inconceivably wonderful thing can happen and be experienced. Without that structure or scaffolding, how do we experience it? You know, how do we touch it? Um, 
I think this is one of the deep lessons of Zen and, and maybe, you know, uh, especially for us Americans. Um, I think as Americans, we have traditionally had a kind of uh, what I might call corrupted vision of freedom. We think that freedom means, you know, all rules, all kind of, you know, um, any inconvenience is a hindrance to my freedom. You know? And I think we see that um, playing out even in this pandemic, that our misunderstanding of freedom um, as no rules, as a kind of like chaos, um, doesn't actually make us free. Um, and yet sort of counterintuitively, rules and structure kind of allow this wonderful freedom. I think this, this is definitely happening in Zen practice, but it's not just Zen practice. Um, I think this is an aspect of all arts and poetry and music. You know, poetry only works because there's some established understanding. You know, there's meter, there's rhyme. And this wonderful, beautiful kind of freedom can be expressed through these rules. You know, music only works because we have a shared scale, you know, a shared understanding of certain notes, um, a shared understanding of timing and meter as well. So I think forms in Zen practice act in that same way. So one of the most constrictive um, forms of poetry, you could say, um, might be the haiku. Um, I think most of us know, you know, haiku is three lines of five syllables, seven syllables, five, or I think in, in um, Asian countries, it's a certain number of characters, certain number of characters, certain number of characters. Um, and Traditionally, there's some reference to the season, you know, so in this very limited, you know, sparse um, um, form and, and, and kind of structure, um, we still have to kind of meet all these regulations and express some, some word has to be about the season. And yet, um, in that form, something kind of wonderful can happen. And um, I don't know if most people know, but Mitsu Suzuki, um, Shunryu Suzuki's wife, um, stayed on at San Francisco Zen Center after um, Suzuki Roshi died for 20 years um, and taught, um, I think, tea. And, and she was a, a kind of a, a wonderful poet. And so um, there's a book of her poetry um, forgetting the name of it, but, but anyway, I just wanted to share with you a couple of Mitsue's um, poems. And some of them seem to be about Suzuki Roshi, you know. This is, she says, forgiving each other, clear eye contact, wisteria rain. Here's another one. In each bonsai tree, 
in each bonsai tree, clear night. Gardenia's whiteness remains. The night is complete. So Zen also has a kind of history of poets and kind of wandering poet monks. Um, but perhaps most famous uh, of them is Ryokan, who lived in the 19th century. And this one was um, apparently written, uh, he, he came back to his cabin one night and um, all of his few possessions had been stolen. You know, traditionally monks had just a few items that they were kind of allowed to have or own. Um, but it's, it's so apparently his calligraphy pen, begging bowl, and his one blanket he had used to sleep had all been stolen. And he composed this haiku um, upon arriving home. Uh, Ryokan says, the thief left it behind, the moon at my window. This is another Ryokan poem. <clears throat> Who says my poems are poems? These poems are not poems. When you can understand this, then we can begin to speak of poetry. And uh, one last Ryokan poem has a kind of joyous feeling to me. He says, wild peonies now at their peak in glorious full, full bloom, too precious to pick, too precious not to pick. Wild peonies now at their peak in glorious full bloom, too precious to pick, too precious not to pick. Well, like I said, this um, subject is vast and I have a number of other points that I could make, but um, maybe this is a good place to um, to end for now. Um, I'm just curious if there are uh, questions or thoughts or impressions that folks want to share or share your experience of um, learning forms. Yeah, Karen, I see. Thank you, Tim. This was wonderful. Yeah, I boy, thought of a lot of things you've saying. What when a side thing is that um, I've noticed that Zoom reinforces this feeling of you're being a, each person being the center of the universe. Your your photo is uh, my photo. It's always like the first one I mm -hmm. see, whether in the strip or, <laughs> and I assume that's true for everyone else. So we all feel like we're number one. <laughs> More of that illusion. <laughs> Yeah, it's very American, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's a, a question I had was um, my, my journey with the forum has definitely been um, influenced by my uh, work to recover from perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And um, when I started out, I would feel very ashamed and embarrassed when I didn't know form or when I made mistakes and um, evolved. Uh, a lot and, and really loved thinking about the forms as a dance 
so that's changed a lot, although that sort of recovery from perfectionism is still, you know, a work in progress, but a lot different from 30 years ago. But I wanted to ask you, since you've been involved with, with me over the last year and all these the classes we've been taking on racism, um, and, and one of the things that has popped up that was sort of new to me was a connection of perfectionism and whiteness. And I'm still trying sort of understanding that. But I wondered if you had any uh, thoughts about that and in you know, there must be things that we've done, emphasized, taken, not taken with Zen as it's come from Japan to America and mostly white culture, um, maybe including that kind of thing and wondering if you have any, any thoughts about that. Yeah, thank you. Um... I'm not sure. I, you know, I had the same impression when when we read that piece in wake in the wake up group about characteristics of whiteness and it, particularly that one of perfectionism. Like it struck me, like you, it sounds like it, it right away. It struck me as somehow true, but not in a way that I can quite explain or understand. I think you know the one thing I would say is that we can create rules as a way to control others, you know? So, um, and we can do this in Zen practice. It can be a kind of, um, you know, this is the, the kind of, maybe the dark side of so many rules. It's like, like you're saying, forms can be a dance. It can be a shared language or kind of, which is wonderful, but it can also be a kind of dictatorship like, you know, you must do this or you're not doing it right or you don't belong here or something, you know. So I think there's there's a kind of controlling aspect in, in perfectionism or um, there's also a lot of self-consciousness and, and, I, and I suffer from this too, um, a lot of self-consciousness and perfectionism, perfectionism, like there's a lot of kind of self-importance that like, I have to get this right, you know, like already there's a kind of a pretty big I in the room, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's helpful. I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I had this similar impression of like, yeah, that's really true. And I don't quite understand why. <laughs> Still working on that one. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is the practice of unpacking whiteness, you know, like of putting up a mirror and seeing the ways we've been conditioned um, and, and wondering like, how, how, how does that work? And how does that harm me or harm others, you know? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So I think Mako's keeping the, the um, Stack and I think Ernest was next. Okay, I, I was just uh, curious about what happened after your six months of euphoria. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know when exactly it ended. It wasn't like a certain day where it was like, oh, there, it's gone. But um, it kind of trailed away. 
I think, you know, in a very human way, uh, there was a few euphoria of escaping and then, you know, that wears off and there's a kind of loneliness of being not part of anymore. That makes sense. Yeah. So we, we can always find some problem with what's going on or where we are. Okay. But yeah, I think there was a profound also, you know, just in the same way there was a euphoria, there was a profound loss of community, you know, in a way I can say in the morning brushing my teeth, I'm feeling watched or, you know, and I'm barely awake and there's a kind of stress to that, but also like it's comforting. Like there's always people around. I'm never alone in a monastery, you know, um, there's a deep comfort in that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Ernest. Andrew. Hi. Hi. Uh Thank you for the talk. Uh, it, was, it was great. Um, I've been reading a book called Zen Under the Gun, and it's about um, Zen masters in 13th century China when they were dealing with the Mongols and everything was bad. Um, and one of the things they talk about in the introduction of this book is how Zen and its forms and practice evolved to different situations, different places in different centuries. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are, like how how is Zen going to evolve in contemporary America or will it even change that much? Wow, that's another huge, huge kind of area of um, consideration and inquiry. I think forms are adaptive. They, they kind of have to be. Um, so there's both, you know, for me, there's a kind of, amazement that a lot of the forms of our daily life are the same as they were in the 13th century. You know, like Dogen writes out, you know, how you walk into the Zendo and he specifies which foot you step into the Zendo with, you know, so um, there is a kind of um, continuity of form, but also forms are always adapted to, there has to be a flexibility along with that continuity. Um, and this is the, this is that kind of edge that we walk in bringings and practice to a new place. You know, what parts are, you know, should we hold on to, to maintain this continuity of practice and which parts are, um, kind of not appropriate for this time and place. Um, and I think even on a smaller scale, um, we get to practice this with the forms. So, um, my first seven or eight years of practice were at one temple, the Chapel Hill Zen Center. And I, you know, was very enthusiastically learning the forms there. And then I had the experience of going to a different temple. And, you know, all of my comfort level with the forms kind of got shaken. Um, not because the forms were completely different. You know, that almost would be its own new kind of learning, but they were just subtly different. So, you know, I think I understood the forms of the new place and then I'd make a mistake because it wasn't exactly the same. And I'm still doing that. You know, I, um, the after lecture chant, you know, may our intention equally extend to every being in place. Um, beings are numberless. I vow to save them. To me, that's a new form, even, you know, new meaning in the last 15 years, 
But for the first seven or eight years of my practice, that was the line was beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. And I still make that mistake, you know, I like, so I think forms do adapt and in their adapt, adapting, they kind of keep us awake again, you know, um, our habit mind is so strong that even forms can become habitual, you know, and put us to sleep in the same way that, you know, not, not having forms can put us to sleep. Um, anyway, I appreciate your question. I think there's a large, long conversation kind of going on. And, you know, Zen is still relatively new to this country. Um, uh, you know, largely, I would say only in the last 70 years has Zen been practiced here by Americans. And in the history of Buddhism, that's a very small amount of time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Rich is um, next. Yeah, thank you, Rich. Uh, thank you, Tim. For that mm -hmm. that um, yeah, I, if I may, um, you know, I, I hesitate to talk about this because it, I feel sometimes like talking about the forms is like, well, it's not something you talk about. It's just the thing that it is, and it's like to even question them is to question the authority of the the people in charge. And I'm like, wow, that that seems seems arrogant. Um, and yet, you know, last time I was talking about, we had that discussion at the end about, I brought up that story about my encounter with that young black man and how I was the one who had to tell him to take his shoes off. I guess really, I wasn't talking about the form so much in that discussion as I was like questioning my own whiteness. And I think some people, some, some people brought that up. I just want to clarify that point. I wasn't trying to clarify, trying to interrogate or interrogate the forms as such, mm -hmm. but mostly, mostly my own whiteness, which is from what I've learned is a lot of what supports white supremacy is the idea that white people want to support it. They want to maintain it. They want to maintain their own privilege and power. And so they don't, they sort of, they're sort of self-deputized to maintain it. And so they're going around telling people how they should be, telling people who are different than themselves, how they should be, how they should show up. And so that's really the question I was getting at, um, that sometimes got to be open to that. The conditions of the world are such that there are these problems out there. Um, but I would say that, you know, from what I've noticed is that the forms at Austin Zen Center have generally worked for me as a white man. They somehow just makes sense. But at some point I was like, I wonder why that is. I wonder why they work so well with me. But when I look around the room, there are no black people. And I don't know what that, I don't know the answer to that, but it just sort of made me uh, question, asked me, a, had a question that I couldn't shake. I couldn't shake it. You know, I couldn't just go, Oh, that's not a problem. Oh, it is a problem. It, I, you know, if I, ask myself that question deeply it's really a problem um and I, I know that this again i wasn't talking about the forms but i would just reiterate would echo what other people said about how the forms are not permanent and what you said about i would agree with you about forms not are not permanent that they're empty and that um that they're they typically are sort of locally defined 
And then I'm even thinking about how when Shinryu Suzuki set up Tasahara, he had to say, well, men and women don't practice together in Japan. Okay, let's just forget about that. We'll just, well, men and women can practice together, you know, why not? You know, it, and so it was sort of like he had to be flexible with the conditions, you know, and um, I know that when I think about that, I think about how the San Francisco Zen Center now has a women's lineage that would not have been possible until we got here. And the people who were in leadership decided, you know what, that we need that. The conditions demand it. I, I you know, I, I, I respect your authority. I respect Mako's authority, and I res but I, I wouldn't want to, I guess in some ways, wouldn't want to be having to make some of the choices that you have to make about what the forms are, because it's, it seems like it's fraught with all kinds of challenges. And um, I, in that respect, I sympathize with you, but I also have to just ask the question, you know? Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you for- Yeah, yeah thank you, Rich. And um, yeah, I do want to clarify. I, I mean, I definitely heard your point last week and, um, uh, and I hear it again, and and I um, and I want to repeat it that there is something about um, American Zen, maybe American Buddhism, that um, tends to be very white, and I don't know exactly why that is, you know. And I'm open to hearing um, any kind of perspective on why that might be, or what we could do differently. But I think what I also sort of took out of your story was that this was a young black man coming to Austin Zen Center for the first time, but um, he wasn't just a young black man. He was somebody who was new. In that sense, he's part of a broader, you know, anybody walking in the door who doesn't understand the forms, how do we understand that experience or kind of find some way to be welcoming or inviting. Um, so I think that's that's the sort of piece of what you had to say that I kind of took and, and went with. But I, I do appreciate your making that distinction last week and making that distinction again. So thank you. Yeah, Melanie. Hello. Hey. Yeah. I have to laugh at myself a lot because whenever I think, oh, this topic, it's going to be about rules and stuff. I'm not going to like it. And then <laughs> it's something else entirely. That happens to me a lot. Um, and uh, when I first came to the Zen, Austin Zen Center, the forms were kind of like a performance to me. And I used to perform. I used to play music and I was a modern dancer. So like it felt familiar and it, I really enjoyed Ooh, the performance, do this, this way with your foot and all that. And it's like, um, in listening to you and of course, well, it's not that though. <laughs> it's not a performance. <laughs> and the idea of, of rules or forms as some kind of freedom is that par one of those paradoxes, I think. Um, I found it really interesting when you said after you left, five years in, in, uh, you know, a monastery environment that um, you realize something about the way you had conceived 
of the forms in your own mind. Um, and I, I, uh, I find that fascinating to think that, um, you know, it's revealing, it's self-revealing mm-hmm. um, about relationship to people and structure and ourselves. Um, you know, we have our own forms at home, our habits and things. Um, I've been telling people about this guy. He's a professor at Stanford. I think I mentioned this in our little chat group last week. B.J. Fogg, F-O-G-G. He's a Ph.D. And he has this uh, book called Tiny Habits and a website about it. And he talks about how people change their habits. Um, and, and you start super, you start in very, very, very small ways. So this was turned out to be a very deep topic. And I'm a perfectionist as well. And I've appreciated hearing what other people had to say about their experience of forms. Um, and uh, that feeling that you get if you feel like you're doing it right, that you, that you can judge other people and things. It's like, wow, it's just another mirror of how I'm not free mm-hmm. in that way. And I think that the that I appreciate the forms for that there is freedom in it because you you don't have to, you can be wherever you are as you described. You don't uh, know what's going on with other people. People don't necessarily know what's going on with you, but you have this place to go and be in that stream together. Um, I really appreciate that too. I don't have a very focused set of comments here. So I think that that's enough. Thank you. Yeah, that was lo- lovely. Thank you. Um, particularly your description of how we are are kind of isolated in our experience and yet through practice we create this kind of place and time to to have a shared experience yeah it really feels precious now yeah and i I um, one of the other values of the forums and i think you were kind of hinting at this is that um you know the forms generally stay the same, you know, there's a largely, they're the same as they were in the 13th century. And the value of having something stay the same is that it shows us how much we change, you know? So um, it is a kind of mirror that I can interact with the forms year after year after year and see how my impressions of them and my reactions to them are different. You know, how, how much our life is actually changing kind of can only be seen by kind of maintaining something that's the same to kind of reflect against. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Good to see you, Melanie. Thank you. Bruce. Yeah, Bruce. Thank you, Tim. Um, I, I, I think this is a topic I kind of, at moments like this, I wish we talked about more. Um, because it really helps connect all the things that we talk about with all the things that we actually do. You know, this is something that, that our, our individual negotiation with or dance with the forms is something that every time we practice tends to come up. But even though we can't, even though talking about it is separate, it's, it's nice every once in a while just to feel like we, we can check in. Like, so I, I think this was a very good thing to give some time to talking about um, what you were just saying about the continuity of forms, allowing the change to, to be visible reminded me of, uh, and, and I know other people will remember this more precisely, but um, 
sometime that Suzuki Roshi was talking about forms or was, be, was being asked about forms and why do we all do these things the same way? Um, you know, and, and his response was something along the lines of when you're all doing your own thing, I can't see what's going on with you. I can't see where you are. When, you're all, when we're all maintaining the same forms, then it's easier to see with how each person embodies them and, and wrestles with them, negotiates whatever, then it was easier for him in that instance as a teacher to see how people were doing. You know, if you're all trying to maintain a posture and someone's not, or someone's too rigid, um, it's, it's easier to see the difference when the form, the external form is, you know, ostensibly the same. Um, the other thing that, that, that really most stood out to me from your talk, and this is reflecting my own background and bias, but was the idea of form as language. Um, because it, it's not entirely social in a sense that my experience with a form is as a way of guiding and, and directing my own practice. You know, how is what, which foot is it, right? Like, do I know which foot it is that I'm stepping in with? So there's, there's an individual dynamic to working with forms, but it's, it's really, the other side is about, first of all, as you're saying, when you're occupying a narrow space, just, just negotiating the, physical, the physicality of it and literally not stepping on each other's toes, you know? But, but the question is, as language, you know, we have grammar, we have vocabulary and definitions. And part of the reason is that we're trying to connect socially with each other. So we need some degree to which we have this commonality of, 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 of a way to exchange ideas. But to the extent that we try to fixate on that and say, these are the rules, and this is what this word means, then there's a rigidity that, that no longer serves except for those who want control to try to, to have a way to exert that control over others. Or, or to kind of set themselves up for disappointment. You know, do, do we it's, it's linguistically, it's a prescriptive approach versus a descriptive approach. You know, it's like thou shalt, and this is the way to do it. Um, and of course, for us, it's more about the middle way, right? It's, it's that dance between um, here's what the form is, and here's this specific situation at this specific place and time where I'm gonna make this judgment, like, like this is what I am doing now versus what I should be doing. So it just fascinates me that this is something that there is continuity and there are standards, but it's just this perfect window in, into a Zen perspective that if, if you say I must do the forms correctly and I must know what they are, you know, then it's less a game. It's, it's more like, like I, want, I want to be right. You know, versus I want to be present and I want to connect versus I want to control. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, uh, it, it just fascinates me because I had, when I first stepped into a Zen center as well, it's just, I had no preparation. Like nobody told me there was going to be anything like that. I thought we we're just going to sit in silence. Like what the heck is all this stuff? <laughs> um, and what does it have to do with meditation? Now I, I you know, some years in, I, I have, a much deeper appreciation for how it's just 
it's training, you know, and it's training in this is, oh, I'm, I'm at this place. I'm right now and I'm coming back to now. And it's a way to, it's just a very, it's, it's a way to embody the practice literally. And, and I'm grateful for that. So thank you for your talk and the chance to reflect on that. Yeah. Thank you. There's a lot there. Thank you for sharing all of that. And um, I, I actually thought of that Suzuki Roshi story too, and, and I couldn't find it. I couldn't, so I, I, I kind of left it out, but um, something about him saying that, um, you know, in, especially because most of the Americans that he was hanging out with were like young kind of hippies and like, you know, tie dye shirts and hair and beards and like, so much self-expression, you know, and to him, it was like, I don't see you when you, when you express yourself so freely, like, I don't understand you or something. And yet when you maybe put on a robe and you all sit facing the wall, like I see your individual nature or something that there's something really deep about that. Um, so yeah, thank you for that reminder. And one other form that I wanted to talk about, and again, this could be future talks, one form is Zazen. So Zazen is a, a form, you know, Fukan Zazengi is an explication of the form of Zazen. And it's very detailed, again, like most things in Zen. Um, so we take this posture, you know, as your nose in line with your navel, you know, um, are your eyes, you know, parallel? We take this form, this structure, and then something inconceivably wonderful is kind of like flowing through that, possibly, potentially. So again, it's this kind of structure and freedom and the kind of relationship of those. Um, but yeah, thank you, Bruce. And, you know, thank you for your, you know, um, diligent attention to the, the forms and, and um, I would say when I made the distinction that the, at a monastery there are certain people that are kind of tasked with giving feedback or um, reminding people of certain forms one of those people most explicitly is the Eno so you know I think Bruce is empowered to to kind of help people remember forms or learn them uh, in particular, as the you know, yeah, who's who's, who's they? Hello, Tim. Uh, thank you very much uh, for this uh, great talk. Uh, of course, uh, yeah, I I like rules. Uh, I like it when there are rules around me and I can follow them. And uh, I feel, oh, you know, I must be doing better because I'm following these rules. <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> um, uh, and I like the order and structure that they provide. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and I like that your talk today deflated a lot of that where uh, it's not about me and like, you know, looking over and watching someone else do Zaza and say, ah, I'm doing the right form and they're doing the wrong form, so I must be a good student. Um, uh, and instead, uh, instead, it's a lot more about, uh, about selflessness and, um, and, and just sort of being. Uh, so I appreciate uh, your talk as well as uh, a lot of the previous comments, uh, you know, about, you know, the balance between, uh, you know, being uh, in a form versus perfectionism and so on. Uh, I think that is, I think that's a very uh, interesting uh, push and pull that I've never uh, thought of before. Um, uh, and I wanted to also uh, add a little uh, dimension to this conversation we're having about race and uh, forms uh, and rules. Uh, and I believe uh, so. I, I like rules. I, I like that there are you know there's sort of like a systematic uh, 
um, uh, systematic uh, structure around me, but at the same time, uh, even I feel uh, like, uh, although there are rules in this country that seem objective, um, they've been written by rich white people with power uh, and uh, pe uh, people who are not benefiting from these rules, of course, look at these rules and think the system is against me. Uh, and so this is a sentiment that, um, that I, I, it's definitely, uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of this sentiment. And I think it's very easy for uh, a color, person of color to walk into a, uh, to a sangha, see everyone is white, there are all these rules, uh, and, uh, and this is not gonna be the place where I fit in. Um, and, and, and so it's nothing that, uh, like nobody uh, inside of the sangha is at fault even because they haven't even done anything, um, but probably just that very first exposure uh, I don't know what it's like uh, because when I walked into Zendo uh, for the first time, uh, I did not feel uncomfortable. And as you can see here, I still am. Uh, but, um, but there is this complicated relationship between race and rules in this country. Uh, and, uh, and I think uh, this is something that we may want to think about as we uh, also continue this discussion on rules and forms uh, uh, in the Zen Center, or at least in our communication to newcomers, uh, what, these what, what these rules and forms are, uh, because they are indeed very, they're, they're a form of uh, liberation rather than uh, in a way of keeping somebody down. Uh, so, uh, so how we can express this, uh, you know, uh, is, is, a, is a pretty big question, uh, but at least I'm glad that it's been raised today. Yes, thank you so much. And actually that, um, that was an epiphany for me, just that, I mean, it, it seems so logical that we live in a country where laws have been used to oppress very clearly and that within that context somebody who's been oppressed by those laws and comes into a, a rule-filled place it's kind of echoing um absolutely that totally makes sense to me in that moment in the moment now but um, i really appreciate you clarifying that um, so thank you all myself and then Tracy, and I think we need to cap it at that point. Okay, okay, that sounds good. We could go on for a very long time. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to to say, um, much like what Bruce brought up, but the uh, this aspect of the forms, uh, for one thing, we all we you know forms are not just Zen, like you said, not just Zen forms. There's forms everywhere in literature and poetry, and then in, in sports. Right. Imagine if you're going to join a sports team and you're going to play a game, you know, a team sport. There's lots of rules and you have a coach who's like, you know, don't do this, do this. And it's like you kind of, you know, expect that when you join a, a sports team. Right. You wouldn't go there and be like, ah, you're going you know, to try to keep me down. Right. So it's 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 interesting how, you know, you know what the stakes are in these different circumstances as well and how what you know, when we go into them what we're kind of in individually signing up for. Um, so just, I wanted to bring that up and especially like martial arts, when you imagine, you know, the amount of attention to detail in, you know, Tai Chi or Aikido, right? It's like a lot of practice and repetition. And you can tell when you see, maybe not everybody can tell, but you can tell when you see somebody who's doing been doing it for a very long time. It's no longer about which foot am I, going in on it's like it's embodied right there's an embodiment it's it becomes internalized and like you were saying about you know you kind of feel it in your body like when's the appropriate time to bow you know and the appropriate is kind of like it's not yeah it's not rule-based so much as it's 
it comes up together with all of everything all at once, including the entire history of Zen, right? Um, but the one, the last thing I wanted to say just is that, and this is kind of uh, extending what Bruce was saying about the feeling in forms or the mind of forms, right? It's not about the rule, like, oh, do this, do that. It's not, we're not rule followers here, right? Let's be very clear. <laughs> we're not, Zen is not about following rules, right? That is, that is fake Zen. But it right. does attract people sometimes who like to follow rules and they yeah, feel yeah. and it's up yeah. to teachers to pull those rules out from under them when yeah. that happens too. Um, however, I will say that the one thing that forms ought to be in any practice environment that forms ought to be in service of is waking up, right? Like Bruce was saying, coming back to the present moment, uh, undermining our tendency to be ego grasping right? A lot of the physical forms are about uprightness, right? How do you be upright? How do you find your balance and be, you know, be upright in, you know, your deportment or in your, and in your thinking too? I mean, forms do not just, are not just physical, you know, manifestations. They're also, you know, in internally, what, what's your mind doing, right? If forms are ways to kind of turn the light around and see what's happening inside me, when I get, you know, everybody has this feeling. As soon as you know something, it's like, oh, that person's doing it wrong. It's like, what's the feeling when that happens? You know, it's like, oh, wow, I, I noticed this tightening. It's like the form let me see that. Without the form, I may not see that. So anyway, just uh, uh, this is a fascinating um, and ongoing conversation, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Thank you, Marco. Thank you, Tim. And um, and and Marco was very actually encouraging in, in kind of um, uh, encouraging me to to talk about this today. And I think um, uh, it is a, a kind of as soon as I started looking at it, it is a door that like as a community we've opened. And I think there's so much here to explore together, um, which is wonderful. So yeah. Good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, Mako just said it all. Uh, and I'm glad she did because I was only going to say a sentence, but then she elaborated the what was behind my one sentence, which is, um, uh, yeah, for me, it's all this conversation. Yeah, this is so rich, all of this but in a very, just got to keep it close or otherwise I'm going to get distracted, for, you know, and all of this, what maybe we're all talking about here and the conversation I've had with myself and others for the last 20 years or so um, is forms are the ultimate mirror. They just, and well, you just said, Tim, a door. Yeah, mirror and a door. <laughs> like, where are you now? What's going on now? And this largely being an internal thing uh, and in the service of what is all of this about? Oh, right, thank you, Mako. <laughs> yeah, waking up, waking up to what? Well, this, now, what's going on? And then that, that, that what's this is that ultimate question that is on all these levels that we're all these years we'll be having and, and forever, of course because it's always about this. 
So um, the ultimate mirror, just like mirror awareness. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, Tracy. And I, I want to say one last thing in, in, um, in what Marco brought up about um, uprightness of body, but also mind. And what does that mean? Um, I think uh, we can practice with this through the form. And the most simple form is the form of Zazen. So to, and I encourage, you know, people to, to read Fukan Zazengi or remind yourself of the, the kind of experience expression of posture that Dogen gave when we're doing Zazen. So in sitting in Zazen posture, if I kind of like remember that my nose is supposed to be over my, my um, belly button and I make that slight adjustment, is there a kind of like change in my state of mind and to notice this, you know, this one being um, that body and mind are related and uprightness of body has something to do with uprightness of mind. And if we're kind of like drifting and slouched and, you know, our, our state of mind is, is expressed in that um, physical bearing too. So there's this kind of deep interrelationship between the experience of our body and the experience of our mind. All right. Wow. What a, <laughs> Good discussion, and thank you so much for you know sharing your your experiences of of practice and the forms. It's it's kind of endless, and and uh, brings up a deep appreciation for forms and ceremonies for people who have maintained this way of life, who have put their bodies and minds into the service of this practice so that we can enjoy it, so that we can experience this mirror-like wisdom. You know? So uh, I, I personally feel very grateful to, to Dogen and to the many ancestors and practitioners who have kind of allowed me to now embody this or play with this you know, way of, of being and experimenting with my own life. Um, so let's do the chant together and then um, maybe we can break into um, small groups of people would like to stick around and just say hello to some folks.